To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org donate. To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org donate. This is Marketplace After the Bell. I'm Scott Jagow, and I'm here to make sense of what happened this week in business and the economy. It's Friday, October 23rd. This week, I'm sure you heard a lot about bonuses on Wall Street. The guy in charge of making pay rules, Kenneth Feinberg, came out with a proposal for limiting compensation at seven companies, GM and Chrysler and their finance divisions, Bank of America, Citigroup, and AIG. Why those seven? Well, they're still on the government dole. But something's amiss here, and today on After the Bell, we're going to understand what that is. Meanwhile, Fortune Magazine's Alan Sloan says something is missing as well. So much coverage and passion has gone into the bonuses that people have forgotten what's really going on, which is an enormous transfer of wealth from the savers of America to the people who haven't saved. And in the process, Wall Street is making a fortune. What Alan's talking about is the obscenely low interest rates that banks have used to make obscenely high profits this year, while the average taxpayer is just trying to save a few dollars and can't make any interest on it because of those low rates. But surely the economy is in a safer place than it was a year ago, right? Well, let's think about it. The banks are healthier, and that was one of the goals. The economy is showing signs that it might start growing, and that, of course, was one of the goals. But jobs and loans are still hard to come by for most people. And the big banks that have survived are actually bigger than they were before. Does that sound like a safer place, Neil Borofsky? Systemically, we may be in a more dangerous place even than when we were a year ago. Borofsky's in charge of monitoring the TARP bailout money. And he's particularly concerned about the too-big-to-fail problem, that the banks that have survived are actually bigger and are still tied to the system. And what of the housing market? The first-time homebuyer tax credit, which has compelled some people to buy into the market, is about to expire. Congress is trying to decide whether to re-up it. Our economics correspondent Chris Farrell says, no, no, no. I know the real estate industry, they're saying this is the end of the world. It's not. And we should stop subsidizing this industry. There is nothing wrong. This is a radical statement, I know. But there is nothing wrong with renting. If you've read my blog lately, you know this is a hot topic. I featured the story of a 20-year-old woman who just bought a home on an FHA loan with very little down, but with more than half of her income going to service that mortgage. She just did this, and the government is helping. It's one example of the government propping up the housing market. 
It's propping up the banks. It's provided a safety net for the entire financial system. But if that's the case, why might there be more danger than ever, as Borofsky says? I mean, do you feel safer? Marketplace, providing you what you need to know about business and economics on air and online. Explore everything Marketplace has to offer, from explainers on technical terms to stories on personal finance at Marketplace.org. The Federal Reserve and the aforementioned Kenneth Feinberg announced their plans this week for limiting compensation at banks and other companies like GM and Chrysler. Joining me to talk about this is Nomi Prince. She used to work at Goldman Sachs. She now blogs at the Daily Beast and has just written a new book. Nomi, I know you take issue with Feinberg's decision to just limit this to seven companies. What's wrong with that? The main thing that's wrong with Feinberg's approach is that we're leaving out the entire rest of Wall Street, and most particularly, we're leaving out the fact that other participants in the market received substantially more than what they received from TARP via Federal Reserve cheap loans, you know, a whole host of other forms of subsidies that overshadow TARP substantially. TARP ultimately was only about 4 to 5 percent of the true subsidization of the industry. So when you just target a very small portion, it's almost more of a cosmetic slap in the wrist, really, for that component, but it really doesn't do anything to change either compensation culture or to recognize the sheer amount of subsidies given to the rest of the street. But Feinberg said that the goal of this was to get these companies to pay back the money that they took from the government. So the ones that have paid it back, why does it matter? Because they've only paid back a portion of what they received from the government, and I think that's the main point. If we take a look at a company like Goldman Sachs, yes, they've paid back $10 billion worth of TARP money, but they also exist on $54 billion of other federal perks, including $12.9 billion that they received through bailout money that was given to AIG, and also another $30 billion of debt they were able to raise substantially cheaper than had they tried to raise it in the private markets without an FDIC stamp. So really, they've only paid back a small portion of what they've received from the government, and yet they are able to pay record bonuses. Their bonuses are up over 10 to 15 percent right now, Mm -hmm. as they were in the year before the crisis. And that's going to continue, and that mentality, therefore, doesn't change. And the other thing that happens if you only slap a compensation cap on a small portion of a small portion of federal recipients um, is that you maintain the risk in the system that was the problem, and it's the impetus and the underlying push to get high profits that translate into high bonuses. Nomi, you worked on Wall Street. You worked for Goldman Sachs. Um, can you explain a, a little bit about how the incentive system works? The incentive system is really about an everyday battle, and, and I mean this, it is, is every day an awareness from individuals throughout the firm to their managers and throughout the top ranks of the firm, depending on where you, where you are on that ladder, about trades, about deals, that all of which you're, you're trying to receive some credit for so that at the end of the year you'll be able to say, well, I'm worth that $5 million, or I'm worth that $10 million, or I'm worth that $1 million, or whatever it might be. There's a constant negotiation and strategizing of compensation, and it is in everyone's minds every day. But I, I've read some research, uh, you know, Dan Ariely, the behavioral economist, has said, 
there's a certain point at which money is not going to motivate extra money is not going to motivate someone to do a better job. It just clouds the picture, actually, because of the stress that's involved. Well, there, there's certainly stress every day, but that that's almost what you sign on for when you're in that environment. And what the money is, it's, it's, it's also a stamp of position. It's, it's, it's a validation as much as it is an amount. So if someone is asking for $10 million, it's because another trader is expected to get $12 million and they don't want to look worse. The actual amount almost isn't as important as the relative amount uh, to someone else. And internally, these numbers are supposed to be kept secret. There's no open list within a firm of who's getting what bonus. But yet, everyone kind of knows and everyone kind of talks about it. And there's always this idea of comparing yourself to the person next to you or the person just above you that you uh, want to succeed in whatever job they're doing. And so even though it creates a certain amount of stress, that, that stress is very much a part of everyday culture on Wall Street. And and again, the amount isn't almost as important as the relative value. Does Feinberg's uh, proposal, though, address this issue, which is you have the executives at the top who are in charge of the running the bank but may not know exactly what the traders toward the bottom of the scale are doing. And that's been some that's been one of the problems, you know, with this crisis, with Enron, if you think back over yes. time. Uh, so does, is that issue being addressed? This issue doesn't really cut that because it doesn't give the incentive to change the risk structure. All, all of this comes down to understanding the risk that a firm is taking on because that's ultimately what creates the trading profits that get translated into bonuses. And so if a senior executive doesn't understand or doesn't try to look at the details of certain risks that's being built up on any individual trading desk. First of all, they're not doing their job properly in managing the risk to the company. Um, but second of all, they're, they're letting a tremendous amount of strength and power come from the trading areas. And, and those are the ones that can go up or can go down. And as we saw last year, they can go down quite substantially when they go down, and they can take down the rest of the system with them. And these people continue to get compensated based on the revenue they're putting in that year. Um, and, and so it does not matter what happens the following year, even though uh, you know, some of these compensation conversations and, and, and potential capping look at trying to extend long periods of time over which a bonus is paid, that's fine, but it gets, it gets computed in the year in which those particular trades that are doing well do best. Mm -hmm. And that's what everybody is trying to do. And the only way to make substantial amounts of money is to take substantial amounts of risk. It, it's not a little-by-little little type of endeavor. Okay, Nomi, if you were in charge of compensation, what would you do? I would look to make it long-term and, and make the bonus payment not just related to the year in which certain profits are attained, but, but actually look at those as a sort of average over one or two or even three years, because that mitigates the idea of trying to do the largest deals and perhaps having them fail after bonuses are decided in the following year or in the following two years. So it gives a certain long-term accountability to what's going on. I would also redu reduce risk throughout the system. I would reduce leverage amounts, for example, which still um, per SEC rulings have an ability for companies to take 30 to 1 risk on their assets as opposed to what it used to be, which was 12 to 1. I would bring that down to 6 to 1. I, I would make it more difficult to take on the kinds of risks that relate to these compensations. In other words, I would look at things from the bottom up rather than merely the top down because I think that's how we both stabilize the system and reduce compensation. I'm curious, Nomi, 
Why did you leave Wall Street? Um, I got a little bit sick of the horse trading every day in terms of really negotiating the constant bonus and the constant amount of money. I thought actually it became quite empty and uh, mm. there wasn't any, we weren't really producing anything of value. When you create a CDO, and I was involved in, in a lot of the CDO business, which is at the crux of, of, of a lot of these toxic assets, um, you're not creating anything. You're really just stuffing securities or other types of loans or other types of bonds that, that are fairly junky to begin with and you're refiguring them and you're not actually doing anything more than that and at some point you look at that and you look at how much you're fighting to get paid to do that and it really has um, very little personal value um, you know and perhaps for me it was a combination of some sort of moral cathartis as and uh, the idea of life being too short to have that be my motivation and so I just found that I was more motivated by by writing and, and, and producing information in that way and actually looking at the bigger impact of banks on the overall economy which you don't have the time to do when you're within those institutions and now that you're on the outside, do you think that the populist anger that's out there against companies like Goldman Sachs, do you think it's justified? Yeah, I absolutely think it's justified. Look, this is a company that when the rest of the economy was flailing and now it's doing even worse than it was going into the crisis last year, received $64 billion worth of federal money that we or in subsidies that we know about. This doesn't even count what they're receiving from the Federal Reserve and New York Federal Reserve, whose balance sheets remain uh, closed secrets to everyone else. And even if uh, the general public doesn't understand all of the details of all of those types of dealings that went on, they understand that Bowman is on track to make records bonuses, and they're doing it on the back of public subsidies. There's no other way to look at that situation. And so they're absolutely right to be upset by that. We're looking at mm -hmm. an economy that's deflated since Goldman has received these subsidies and didn't get those subsidies. Foreclosed homes did not receive the ability to have borrowers restructure their mortgages with added government money that Goldman received to inflate its capital in order to continue to trade and pay those bonuses. And so I think all of that anger is completely justified, more so now than it ever was before. And your book is uh, on this subject? My book is on uh, on the bailout and on the myths that were behind it, such that you know we would be increasing credit for everyone else, and it would help the general economy if we helped the banks, and and how all of that dealing got created, how much the banks really got, and what they really did with it, and what the economy really didn't get out of it. Um, and it's called it takes a pillage because it really was a pillaging, a public pillaging of government funding to the banking system from the current and future public till. Well, it sounds like a good read. Can't wait to get a hold of it. Nomi Prince, thanks so much for being with me. Thank you so much. Specifically, the title of Nomi's book is It Takes a Pillage, Behind the Bonuses, Bailouts, and Backroom Deals from Washington to Wall Street. You can read her stuff at thedailybeast.com. This is Marketplace After the Bell. I'm Scott J. Gow. This week, the PBS program Frontline aired a documentary called The Warning. If you didn't catch it, make sure you track it down online and watch it. It is kind of one-sided, but in hindsight, I'm not sure there is another way to look at this story. It's about Brooksley Bourne. 
She ran the Commodity Futures Trading Commission back in the late 90s, and her warning was that the credit derivatives market was dangerous. It was completely unregulated, so Bourne didn't know what might be lurking inside this market. But President Clinton's Financial Markets Working Group was adamantly opposed to regulating derivatives. The team included the man who now runs President Obama's economic team, Larry Summers. Here's Bourne's recollection. They were totally opposed to it. That puzzled me. You know, what was it that was uh, in this market that had to be hidden? So it made me very suspicious and troubled. As you probably know, Bourne lost the fight with Clinton's working group. But she was watching a decade later when the derivatives market collapsed. It was my worst nightmare coming true. The toxic assets of many of our biggest banks are over-the-counter derivatives and caused the economic downturn that made us lose our savings, lose our jobs, lose our homes. It was very frightening. Bourne has a new warning, and it's the same. The -the over-the-counter derivatives market is still a danger. The House just passed new rules on that market, but some are saying there are still loopholes. Hopefully those can be fixed as the bill moves through Congress. I'm sure someone like Brooksley Bourne takes no pleasure whatsoever in having to say, I told you so. And that's After the Bell for this week. I'll be back next Friday to make sense of what's happening in business and the economy. In the meantime, you can read more about these topics at my blog, The Scratchpad, at Marketplace.org. Have a great weekend. American Public Media. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.